The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Mark 11, verse 1, the familiar triumphal entry story. As we continue through the Gospel of Mark, let us give close attention to God's Word. Hear the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? For all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. In the fall of 2004, during that presidential election, when George W. Bush was president of the United States, 
My youngest daughter and I decided we'd get on our bikes because President Bush was coming to the Lancaster Airport, and we knew that there were going to be a lot of cars, so we hopped on our bicycles and rode the mile or so from our house to the airport. A great throng was assembling. The cars were backed up, it looked like, for miles. We thought we were really being smart to go on our bicycles, and people were walking from far away. There were even horses and buggies on the route this large crowd gathering with expectation. Then we arrived and we're, we went through the metal detectors and everything to this great crowd. We waited and we waited. And then, breaking through the clouds, Air Force One was sighted. Not long before that, the Lancaster Airport had been expanded so it could even take a big plane like that. I don't think since then ever such a great plane had landed. It broke through the crowds and began descending. And out of the giant speakers in the airport blares the stirring, triumphant fanfare of Aaron Copeland. Trumpets blasting, the plane descending, people waving signs and crying out. And soon, the President of the United States appeared to thunderous ovation. What a heady experience that must have been. I gave my testimony at the men's stakeout last night, and everybody stood up and applauded afterwards, and I felt kind of like a celebrity I don't usually feel that way. However, the president, that president, this president, every president, every king, every ruler of the world of all time, their kingdom and their power is transitory. It is passing. And soon they were sweeping up the debris at Lancaster Airport, and you go there now, and there's no evidence of that event. The transitory nature of the kings of this world. But as we see in this well-known account of Jesus' triumphal entry, Jesus is the only king, and his is the only kingdom that stands forever. And let us ask, as we consider this account, have we rightly received this true king, this lowly but now exalted king Jesus Christ. Our first point tonight is this. Look in faith to this lowly but now exalted king. We want to think about the triumphal entry. It's interesting because it's a triumphal entry, but it's also lowly at the same time. And now Jesus is exalted at the Father's right hand. He's ascended into heaven. So we worship and serve and trust in a meek and lowly Savior in his humility when he came the first time, but is also the exalted, glorious king. We know from the Gospels, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus had set his face like a flint to come to Jerusalem. We've seen that he's prophesied and predicted his death and resurrection a number of times. He's told his disciples they don't seem to understand, but he is journeying toward Jerusalem some Experts say that possibly it's a nine-month journey, and commentators say possibly 35 stops along the way. It's kind of like a campaign. It's not, it's not directly. You're stopping at every village along the way. Jesus is going inexorably to Jerusalem, and he times his arrival to be the week of Passover. It's estimated that the population of Jerusalem swelled at Passover to one million. 
Can you imagine that? I was reading in the newspaper this week that the population of Lancaster grew by like 2,000 and some last year, and that's good. Some counties have lost population, but the whole county is about 538,000. So if you pack the whole county, imagine kind of throng center city, Lancaster, and then double that. Can you imagine what Jerusalem would have been like with people camped out all over the place? must have been something to see. And shortly before this triumphal entry in John's gospel, we know that Lazarus has been raised, and what a stir that created. And the leaders of the Jews were scheming then, how can we put him to death? And many went out to see Lazarus and tried to see Jesus too. So we can imagine the whole area is seething with tension and expectation. It's like the recent presidential election, sorry to mention presidents again, but maybe times 10 or maybe times 100. Is this the Messiah? Everybody is roiled by this. What will happen next? What will Jesus do? What will the leaders do? And Jesus enters triumphantly but lowly. We read there here that he approaches from the east, from Bethany. Bethany is about two miles from the Jerusalem wall. And in between Bethany and where Jerusalem is, is the Mount of Olives. And Bethphage was apparently on the southern slope. It's a little hamlet, apparently, on the Mount of Olives. I've never been to Israel, but this is what I read. And as he approaches, he tells the disciples to get this donkey, this colt on which no one has ever ridden, and he's going to enter on the donkey. That would have been associated with King David. David, the kings of David's time, rode donkeys. Since then, things had changed so that kings tended to ride horses. That was more glorious and great. But Jesus was associating himself with David. And, of course, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy. It was a de- deliberate to enter on the donkey. In this way was a de- deliberate claim and proclamation of his Messiahship. It was prophetic symbolism fulfilling the very word of God. And so Jesus enters I want you to see that Jesus went to the cross as Lord and Master, not as a helpless victim. It was no accident. We know, the Bible makes it clear, it was no accident that he was arrested and crucified. But this triumphal entry was a further step in fulfilling his saving purposes. And Jesus' majesty and his authority begin to shine through as he enters Jerusalem in this way. Jesus had never before courted a public display. Yes, there had been many uh, crowds gathering around him, but now he actually, in a sense, does that. He makes a scene, yet it's so interesting that he makes it with meekness and lowliness. He enters Jerusalem not with the pomp and circumstance of the rulers of this world, but to emphasize his meekness and lowliness. The Lord of the universe coming in humility to lay down his life for his people. It's interesting that 
whenever Jesus, it seems that one of the few characteristics he emphasizes, when you think of, of Matthew 11 and that great invitation of the gospel, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Jesus emphasizes his, his meekness and his lowliness. And as he enters, you can just imagine this, the crowd begins to shout the words of some of the great pilgrim psalms, Hosanna, which means literally save us. And that's what Jesus came to do. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it tells us in the account here that those who went before and those who were followed were shouting. I wonder if the people in front were shouting Hosanna and the ones behind, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, kind of, you know, I used to love football games when they'd say V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, and then the crowd would cry, that's a Carlisle battle cry, you know. It really gets you psyched up. You can just see these crowds and just see the thousands and these chants going up. What a scene it must have been. And yet, marked by Jesus' greatness, garbed in meekness and lowliness. Possibly only the disciples knew that he was riding this colt, the foal of a donkey, which had never been ridden. Probably the crowds didn't know this. But that fact would have been reminiscent and would have pointed to the Old Testament sacrifices that were made and were typically supposed to be not having been used for secular business or anything like that. And so it would have conveyed the truth that Jesus came as a sacrifice, riding this colt to give his life as a ransom for many. And Mark's account doesn't include what Luke says that as he entered He must have stopped and broken out in a deep wail or cry and spoke about his heart being broken for the city that was rejecting him. We read that in Luke 19. What a strange way for the son of David to return to the seat of David's kingdom. Yet there was never a more regal entry into into Jerusalem than on that day. And so our first point, if we're talking about have we received, have we rightly received the true king, have you received the Lord Jesus Christ through faith? Have you recognized who he is? Have you seen his glory in the word of God, his majesty, his ability to save? He enters, and we know what happened that week. He went the whole way to the cross to die for our sins and to rise again. Have you seen Jesus Christ? The other month, Patty and I watched a historical program called The Crown. About It's a portrayal. It's somewhat historical, so you have to check afterwards. Is this true or not? It's a portrayal of the early years of Queen Elizabeth, the existing Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II's reign, and it takes place in the 1950s. And this one episode, it's just so interesting. Uh, The queen mother, the king has died. Queen Elizabeth is queen. The queen mother feels like an, you know, like an extra wheel. And she decides to go to Scotland, to the very northern coast of Scotland, to visit some friends in a castle up there. And she's visiting up there in that windswept 
coast, and they say, let's walk to the castle next door. It's up for sale. So you see them walking across the headlands over there, and it's all beautiful, and, and it takes a while, a couple hours to get there, and they get there and arrive and knock at the door, and the, the old gentleman who owns it, and it you know, it's, needs a lot of work, and he invites them in, but he says, uh, have we met before? And she and the queen mother says, no, we have not. He says, don't tell me your name. A movie star. No. And then he tries to guess who she is. And he, but don't tell me. I'll figure it out. And, you know, the story goes on. And she makes a couple other trips over in this episode. And finally, she agrees to buy the castle for a dollar or something like that. Because it needs, like, 100,000 pounds to fix it up. And, and they shake on it. And she walks out. He's walking her along the beach. And then this uh, kind of secret agent man comes running down with a suit on. Your Majesty! Your Majesty! She's needed back in London. And the old gentleman is dumbstruck. He says, why didn't you tell me? And she says, well, if you would have known, you would have acted differently. Isn't that true? If you would have known, are you living your life without knowing who Jesus Christ is? Are you living your life without seeing the true glory and majesty and saving grace of Jesus Christ, the lowly and meek king who is now exalted? Are you kind of wondering in the back of your mind as you live your life, who is Jesus Christ? I know I've heard a lot about him. Some people use his name in vain. Some people think he was this. That is not just an academic question. This is the most important question of your life. Who is Jesus Christ? The King of glory who came in lowliness to save, but he will come again in great power and glory. And the Bible tells us if you don't know him, if you haven't received him, if you haven't trusted in him and received his salvation, those will cry for the rocks to fall on them. That's how terrible is his glory without being found in him. And so we receive the rightful king by faith. But also, our second point has to do with the genuine nature of faith. Genuine faith is evidenced by genuine fruit. Genuine faith evidenced by genuine fruit. And here we move into the account of the fig tree in verses 12 through 14, and then there's a conclusion in verses 20 and 21. This odd story, we might think, this account of the fig tree being cursed by Jesus and then withering. And many people have a very difficult time with this. And they think, Jesus must have been wrong here. In fact, there are commentaries, liberal commentaries that say Jesus was being vindictive, he was being revengeful, he was being impulsive and angry and callous, and this was really a bad thing. It just shows you that he's just an ordinary man. Not at all. Those things are utterly false. What was happening here? Jesus sees the tree from a distance and sees that it's in full leaf, even though it's not the time of figs. Commentators say that it's still four to six weeks, apparently, from this point, when the time of figs should be. But he goes up, seeing the tree in full leaf, and he looks to find fruit on it, but he doesn't find anything. And so 
He does what we we see here. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. He particularly wanted them to hear it. This fig tree, Jesus wasn't being unfair or callous or angry in that sense. This was part of his creation. This is the creator of heaven and earth. He has a right to use this fig tree however he desires to use it. If he would have chopped the fig tree down or had his disciples chop it down and chop it up for lumber and make a boat and go out on the Sea of Galilee, would that have been wrong? I don't think anybody would have complained about that. If he had chopped it down or had his disciples chop it down and cut it up for firewood and, you know, dried it and everything and used it to cook a meal or heat a house, would that have been wrong? No. A much higher purpose for for this fig tree was fulfilled than any of those uses, which would have been fine uses. Jesus was using the fig tree as a dramatic parable of the spiritual state of Israel that applied not only to Israel, but applies to all time, to all of us, to examine our hearts about the genuineness of our faith. Does it bring forth genuine fruit? Of course, the fig tree was one of the Old Testament images used regularly to speak about the nation of Israel. And what he's saying is he's going to enter the city. He's already wept over Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected, not by every single person. There were those who had become disciples. There were those who were exercising true faith. But by and large, the city would reject him. The leaders would reject him. The very nation that was called to be the nation, the most blessed religious city in the world where the true temple of God, the Shekinah glory of God dwelled. And this nation would reject him and was rejecting him even then. So filled with hypocrisy and hardness of heart so as to reject their true king and Messiah. All leaves, no fruit. And the initial application, as I said, applies to Israel, but it applies to us as well. And that is true saving faith will bring forth true, genuine fruit. Not perfect fruit. None of us as Christians bear perfect fruit and we mourn over that lack. But genuine fruit. In other words, Jesus means business in our lives. As C.S. Lewis writes in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not a tame lion. I love that phrase. He saves us and he changes us. And so it's not surprising that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has talked about the spiritual intent of the law, has talked about its application to our hearts, and said things like the fact that if you're angry, you've broken the commandment about murder. And he's coming to the conclusion, and he talks about uh, bewaring of false prophets and the fact that they would bear fruit. Uh, Every tree is known by its fruit. And then he says these sobering words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There he's talking about someone who's professing faith. And he's saying, he won't enter if he doesn't do the will of my Father. He's not talking about perfection, but he's talking about 
a heart changed that is bringing forth fruit. And then he goes on, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful works in your name? These are kind of the spectacular outward kinds of miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Very serious words and a great warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about the state of our hearts. And so this warning to Israel, which applied especially to the leaders of Israel who were the keepers of the law of God, the prophets and the priests and those who were supposed to be leading and and proclaiming the word of God and who rejected Jesus Christ, we need to ask ourselves likewise, is there genuine fruit in my life? There should be a carefulness about us. We shouldn't be cast down in utter despair or lose our assurance because of this, because we still need to be cleansed and uh, we need to confess our sin every day, our daily kind of sin to the Lord. But it's a calling to examine our heart. Is Jesus Christ dwelling in my life through saving faith? It's part of receiving him as our true king, that our faith be genuine. And this relates to my third point. I actually have these, I kept trying to decide if I wanted to make these last two points, one point or two points. But they're two points because they're different parts of our text. And this third point is this. Genuine faith is essentially Godward, not external. Genuine faith is essentially Godward, not external. The reason it goes so well with the fig tree Because what happens after he speaks to the fig tree is the very familiar passage about Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, he's done this in the beginning of his ministry, and apparently, I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure that he hasn't returned to the temple until since he cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry, and that's when he used the whip to cleanse the temple. This time, there's nothing said about him using a whip to do that. And my point is based on what's happening here in the temple of God. It's interesting. Jesus will say, it's God's house of prayer. In a sense, Jesus is carrying out his role as the true priest of God. He's our prophet, priest, and king. Here he's the priest entering the temple of God and powerfully defending the holiness of God and his house that's being abused. Jesus, the one who is zealous for God and his house, and certainly he means business here. Can you imagine this scene? It's like the triumphal entry. It's something that is hard to imagine. Here is this large court of the Gentiles, three football fields by two and a half football fields. It helps me to think in terms of football fields. I can think that much. That's a pretty big court, isn't it? Think of this big area. And apparently, the court of the Gentiles was often used in that day as a cut-through to get from one part of the city to another part, even though there were laws against that. You weren't supposed to cut through there just as a shortcut to a certain gate. And this court was thronged, especially at Passover. And this was the time for real money-making. And we read about that. There there were these... uh, those who uh, 
who sold and who bought, and they sold pigeons and other animals that were used in the ceremonies. They sold the right coin to take as an offering because you couldn't take an idolatrous coin with an image on it. You had to get the right kind of coin, and they probably made a good profit on that. So this was a great time. This was when the businessmen made all their money for the year, Passover. And just think of the throngs there and, and all these people there, and plus the crowds, and maybe Jesus would be there. And it's just hard to imagine Jesus single-handedly clearing out everybody. You know, probably the hubbub and the animals there and the, you know, the animals' noises and the people calling each other. It was probably kind of a, a dull roar in there. I can just see somebody standing there and, you know, a child, Mommy! You know, Mommy! And, you know, the voice just drowned out because you couldn't be heard. But somehow the dignity and the power and the majesty of Jesus shone out. We're not told what Cause it kind of reminds me of the times when he passed through crowds who were intending to put him to death. And we're not told what was at work there. It's just something about his person. It's like when he was taken in the garden and he spoke and everyone fell backwards. He drove out everybody. And these businessmen certainly wouldn't have liked it. He was defending the holiness of God. And he says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, for the nations. It's interesting when you look at Isaiah 56, and that's from verse 7. Let me read it to you in the context with the verse before it. Interesting. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. That's introduced by foreigners. Verse 7, these, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And how that purpose of God had been desecrated. And Jesus was zealous for the holiness of God and for the temple being a true house of prayer. And that brings us to our point. Genuine faith is essentially Godward, not external. Here were people caught up in the externals of religion, making money off the externals of religion. How terrible it is when the church, in its weakness, in its apostasy, becomes so external as to be caught up in these kind of external things and lose her true purpose as being essentially a house of prayer. And so we ask, how do I produce genuine fruit? We've talked about true faith produces genuine fruit. And so this point helps us to understand that. How do I produce genuine fruit? By exercising genuine faith in God through Jesus Christ. That's the answer to that. But stepping back one more step, and that true faith is essentially Godward. It's dealing with God. It's exercising faith in God through Jesus Christ. It's not a horizontal thing concerning man or anyone else in your life 
or things that you show by way of your fruitfulness or good deeds that you might do or anything like that. It is a God-word thing. It is intensely God-word. You have to do business with God. And it reminds me of something else in the Sermon on the Mount because the Pharisees, some of the leaders of that time of the Jews, Jesus directly speaks to their prayer life. And if you remember, a very familiar thing he says in in Matthew 6, verses 5 and 6, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. In other words, they were praying. The most Godward thing you can do, they were praying it horizontally for show. What a serious thing. But Jesus goes on to say, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is talking about the essential Godward nature of prayer. And prayer is faith walking. Faith is prayer sitting. I like, that's not original with me. Faith is essentially Godward. In his commentary, Sinclair Ferguson is talking about the cleansing of the temple, and he says, now Jesus Christ still cleanses his temple, and his temple is the church. And he points to Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to Jesus' words to the churches in Asia at that time. The seven letters there, Jesus walking among the candlesticks. And Ferguson says, that's a great example of Jesus cleansing his temple, his people now in the New Testament age. And he still is doing that. I was intrigued by that, and I went and read the letters again. I thought, well, what are the main characteristics of what Jesus is calling his church to there? And I read through it, and the thing that appeared the most was repent. I won't go through them all, but just briefly, to Ephesus, he says they've left their first love. How much of a God orientation thing is that? He says, repent. Smyrna, he says, in persecution, do not fear, but be faithful unto death. And the idea is trust him. Thyatira, he says, I am he who searches mind and heart. Do you see the theme here? Jesus sees the churches. He sees what's going on. He exhorts them to often continue in good works, and he exhorts them to put away sexual immorality and some of the false teachers who are rising up. Sardis in chapter 3, he says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Philadelphia, hold fast. They have kept Christ's word about patient endurance and persecution. He says, hold fast. And in Laodicea, you know, the ones who were neither cold nor hot, they were lukewarm, he would spit them out. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. What's the point of all this? It's easy for us to stand in judgment about the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago, but it's much more difficult to be actively seeking God and repenting of the places we need to repent, to be returning to our first love, to know that our Lord, our faithful Savior and Lord, searches our hearts. 
And whether it's in persecution or whether we're being led astray, possibly by temptation or seduction, or whatever the case that the seven churches of Asia Minor were experiencing, those same things are occurring nowadays. And the thing is, we need to hold fast to Jesus Christ in faith, in a very Godward, God-centered, Christ-centered way. Isn't that very similar to the danger of a kind of Christianity that is all leaves and no fruit. That's why I think the fig tree and the cleansing really go hand in hand. The upshot is seek to walk with God, with a living faith that bears fruit. Genuine faith is evidenced by genuine fruit, and it's essentially Godward. Really, it's a beautiful thing. Isn't this what true Christianity should be all about? Isn't this what the, the true Christian life should be like? A life lived in active relationship to Jesus Christ, our King, our true King and God. Lilius Trotter was a budding female artist, painter in England in the mid to late 1800s. And she's really largely forgotten by history, but she could have been famous for all time if she would have pursued her art career in England. But at age 37, she decided she chose to go as a missionary to Algeria, North Africa, where she spent the rest of her life till she was 75, pouring out her life there. She didn't give up her artwork completely. She used it there as well, but certainly was forgotten and never noticed by the world after that. But one of her gifts with her artistic ability, was to see the beauty in creation and to marvel at it as from God. Lilius drew exquisite paintings and drawings of flowers and leaves and trees and sunsets of God's creation. And she wrote that one of her greatest daily joys was seeing the beauty of God that he had created all around her and giving him praise and thanks. And certainly she had the artist's eye to see these things that I just don't see. But really, I should stop more often to see the beauty in creation. And yes, we can, we all can and should marvel at the beauty of creation and give thanks to God as part of our lives. But my point in talking about her was that even more so, the Word of God paints a picture for us shows us the beauty of our Savior Jesus Christ, the lowly and exalted King. We see him in God's Word. We see him in the Gospel. We see him by the eye of faith and not by sight. Trust in him. Receive Jesus Christ and walk with him as your rightful King and Savior, the lowly and exalted and triumphant, and resurrected, and coming again, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ revealed in your word. May we long for him. May we walk with him. We pray that you would lift us up when we stumble and fall. Help us to quickly confess our sin, to turn away from all the things that would lead us astray. And Lord, give us strength because we are united to Jesus our Lord, and always looking to him. 
the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.